0: Every once in a while, I kind of marvel at how complex life can be, considering how simply it starts. Um, I have 16 kids. Some of them now have kids. Um, They all have different personalities, likes and dislikes. They have uh, um, their own lives and dramas, uh, very real victories and challenges. They each make mistakes and learn new things. Uh, They're smarter than me in a lot of ways and so much less experienced than others. Um, and all of these different souls require me to be different people. I'm dad at times, and uh, sometimes I'm the wise sage, and sometimes I'm the inappropriate goofball. Um, there's days that I'm friend and confidant, days that I'm I'm almost always teacher and talker. Um, I'm mechanic and doctor and counselor and investor. Um, I have a son who now runs my remodeling company, a son spending the summer at an internship at MIT, a son who's an electrician in the union. Um, several at that stage where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do in the world. Some are thinking about, you know, being a lawyer, so we've got to kick him out of the family. Um, <laughs> I have a daughter who's trying to decide whether or not to be a, a young elementary school teacher or a tattoo artist, you know, so that stuff. Um, several kids in the high school, middle school age with all that drama they're trying to sort out. And my youngest starts kindergarten next fall. And uh, don't even get me started on the daughter-in-laws. <laughs> Plus, Farm animals, pets, maintenance on way too many cars, a house um, that takes a lot of TLC to keep running. And the craziest part of this life and all the living and all the chaos and fullness uh, started 31 years ago because I thought Esther was just drop-dead gorgeous. Like, super hot. Like, that's how this whole thing started. Like, I... I, I. Uh, All this complexity and fullness and richness and joy and pain and laughter and tears. All that future entanglement and involvement that makes up life um, was the absolute furthest thing from my mind when I first saw Esther. I thought she was pretty and I wanted to kiss her and I never stopped kissing her forever. Um, And it started that simply. All of this started that simply. I fell head over heels in love with her. Plain and simple. I was smitten. And to this day, whether um, whenever we get together, just the two of us, spend some concentrated time together, just kind of focusing on each other. Um, That very reminder is always the takeaway. It never fails. There's always this point where we're like, you know what, I like you. I really like being with you. Sometimes we forget in the chaos and craziness that I actually enjoy this person. I like this person. It's a good thing to remember. Believe it or not, I, I find myself... Starting with that point, whenever we do couples counseling with people, somewhere towards the beginning of the counseling journey, we'll always say, let's remember that you two were crazy about each other. Like, let's just start there. There was a point at which you guys liked each other so much you thought being apart was ridiculous, and you decided to, like, bind your life together. So it, it's, it's apparent that you guys love each other. we just got to figure out how to do life so that you can remember that. Like, navigate life a little better so you can remember that. And I know that's a little bit of an oversimplification of some of the difficulties we can run into in marriage. But sometimes we just need to be reminded of the simple things, right? We just need to be reminded of the, the simple truths because life can make us forget them. Life can make us forget the easy things, the simple things, um, like really liking someone. Um, life can beat that out of us. Uh, and believe it or not, that's my entire sermon in a nutshell. Um, and I believe it's the true power of Romans 5. And don't get excited just because that's my sermon in a nutshell doesn't mean I'm gonna, not going to go ahead and preach the whole thing. Um, anyway, but... <laughs> I know that I, I say this stuff all the time, but this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Absolutely. Um, I find myself doubling back on Romans 5 more than any other uh, passage in the scripture. And I don't usually deeply study it. Um, I read it like an affirmation. Uh, I read it as this beautiful reminder of the simplicity of the way things really are. And this chapter is also formative to us here at Open Table, um, which I think you'll recognize as we go through it. We're at the altar. Um, Remember, we're using the tabernacle in the wilderness as this outline for how Romans flows from from beginning to end. We started at the door of the tabernacle, um, which is chapters 1, 2, and half of 3, where Paul declares all of humanity to be condemned under the law. um, Sinners. At the door of the tabernacle, when they would bring their sacrifice, the sinner would lay their hands on the animal, and they would confess whatever sin or sins they're atoning for, and that's exactly what Paul does in chapters one, two, and a half of three. First two and a half chapters of this book. Um, he, he makes sure that every single one of us is under the condemnation of sin. And then last week we made the sacrifice. Or more accurately, God made the sacrifice. Paul says, uh, this at the end of chapter three. He says, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life shedding His blood. So we've moved from the door to the altar, and, and that's where we'll be this morning. Um, and I know I say this every single week, but this chapter is essential to everything else in the book. Um, in fact, I believe it'll be necessary to double back on this chapter over and over and over again as we progress into the deeper waters um, starting next week. Um, we're going to start with the first 11 verses this morning, uh, and then we'll pause to kind of unpack them. They read like this, For God presented Jesus... As the sacrifice for sin. Uh, um, People are... Wait, we already did that one. Okay, here we go. Had an extra slide. Therefore, since we have been made right with God by faith, in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Jesus has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came in just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right within God's sight by, his, by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of uh because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Um, this is not only important, in my opinion, in the life of a believer, um, but maybe uh downright essential, this chapter. Uh it's not only a, you know that it's a really big deal, but its placement is so important. Um, to the book of Romans. And it's why the book of Romans cannot be picked apart um, kind of one memory verse at a time. The progression is really important. So um, uh, let's dive into the content just a little bit. Therefore, therefore, um, and first, just so you know, if you're going to memorize one verse in the Bible, just one verse, Romans 5.1, I think, is what the one you got to get. If you had to pick just one verse. Nobody else says that. I think Romans 5.1 is the most important verse if you're just going to stick one in your head. Um, and just so you know, that word therefore, uh, in Paul's writing, these are huge words. They're transitional words. Anytime you see a therefore, if you're in an older translation, you might say wherefore, or a, a so, or and, or in that case, or then. Those are big words. They mean whatever I just said is essential for what I'm about to say. So don't move on to the next thing till you go back and get what I said last. Because that's a that means since this is true, now this is true. And so if you don't believe this is true, you're definitely not going to get this right. So you you have to get those transitional words. All the words in Paul's writings, um, those transitional words are uh, intentional and important. They mean don't move on until you get it. So for us, that's the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. That God made a sacrifice for us. He paid our price. He did the work. God did it. And therefore, since God did it, since salvation is an act of God, Therefore, we can move on. So Paul declares us all sinners who are incapable of doing anything redemptive on our own. Then he shows how God, in this amazing act of justice, both punished every sin, thereby securing His justice is true, and also He showed grace and mercy to those who believe in Jesus. Boiling the Gospel down to a saving act committed by a graceful God who invites us into a relationship of faith and faithfulness. And we do not get to boast of that because God did it. God did it. And once we get that reality, once you go kind of all into that truth and you believe and you enter into that relationship, chapter 5 is the big picture of how of your new reality. How things look now. How things have changed. And it's some of the most comforting scripture in the Bible. It starts with this idea of peace. Peace with God. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are at peace with God. And we're going to lean into this pretty heavy this morning, and I'll likely make it a way bigger deal than it seems like it should be, but I don't think we can remind ourselves of this reality enough. You are at peace with God. Next week, we're going to start into some of the tough stuff, some of the tough reality of of why do we continue to sin after we're saved, and and. And to be honest, it's difficult stuff and there's a lot of tension and it can be easy to get frustrated. In fact, we can we have some people came up to me after the first week and they were like, Great, you told us we're all sinners. I get that. How do I stop that? How do I stop being a sinner? How do I fix that? You didn't give us the good part. There's gonna be a point in chapter seven where where Paul breaks down in frustration, basically just screams out for help. I cannot get it right. Like and you can just read the frustration in his words. Super frustrating when your heart is changed and you really want to do what pleases God. And it turns out that you're also still selfish and want to do what pleases you. And, and that's tough and it's hard to work out. And then there's the fact that some unbelievers seem to be better than some believers. I don't know what we're supposed to do with that. And you bring in the fact that you know the, the way we're raised impacts all of this, our behavior, and breaking some of those pathways can be tough, and that's not even to mention the damage that other people do to us, and, and that can muddy up the waters. In the midst of all this complexity and chaos, trying to sort all this out, I think it can be really important to go back and remember, I'm at peace with God. I am at peace with God. God is not the problem here. I'm at peace with God. Yes, working all this stuff out is difficult, Paul uses the phrase fear and trembling in another book when he talks about sorting all this out. Sort it all out with fear and trembling. It's hard. But please, 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 as you work out your salvation and what that looks like in real life, remember, you and God are good. You are at peace with God. If you put your faith in Jesus, your sins have already been punished. Your bill has been paid and reads empty. There is no beef between you and God. You are at peace with God. I'm going to say that over and over again. Just like I think it's important in marriage to remind yourself in the midst of all the work and struggle and chaos involved in making life happen that you really do love each other, I think it's also important, if not more important, in the midst of what it takes to figure out how to do the Christian life in 2023, where I'm pretty sure we're pretty soon going to have to start juggling the question about whether or not robots can get saved, because I think that's coming. Um, It's really important to constantly remind ourselves that, that... that all of this stuff we do to live out the Christian life is not because we serve an angry demanding god it's not because god is angry with us trying to trying to make us behave you are at peace with god that peace is done you don't have to strive to please Him. You don't have to grovel when you blow it. You don't have to get it just right or He won't work in your life. There's there's not some power switch you have to fumble around in the dark for. You're not living under some kind of cloud of religious weight. You are at peace with God. And I love how Paul makes this point because it's so logical and powerful when you break it down. Here's what he says. He says, And since we have been made right with in God's sight, by the blood of Christ Jesus, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved uh, through the life of his son. N- there, there is no better way to make this point, which is not going to stop me from trying. Um, Paul is is like, let me be honest here, who do you love more, a stranger or your child? Right? Obviously your child. And that's okay. It's It's a favoritism that makes the world work. Who do you love more? That stranger or your worst enemy who hates you and is actively trying to harm you and slander you and ruin your life? Obviously the stranger, you know, and that's okay. That's a favoritism that makes the world work. So it goes without saying that you love your child more than your enemy. And, and though you might be able to muster like a little bit of mercy and compassion for your enemy in just the right circumstances, uh, it's, it's naturally going to be much easier to find mercy and love and goodness for your own child. And in that same vein, you might put up with a lot of abuse and mistreatment and disobedience and rebellion from your child. But I can't imagine you would put up with that much from your enemy. In fact, every engagement with your enemy, you're probably going to have your guard up a little bit or more than a little bit. And I hope you see Paul's hope here or his point here. That therefore at the beginning of the chapter is so huge. Therefore, since you've already gotten chapter 3 and 4, since you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That therefore represents a transition. It is the line in the sand. It represents salvation. It represents being born again. That therefore decides the divides the reality of enemy from the reality of sonship. Literally, everything changes at that therefore. And Paul's like, if God loved you so much He sent Jesus to die for you, when you were on the other side of the therefore, when you are an enemy with God, where He probably had His guard up a little bit, why would you not think that He loves you like crazy on this side of the therefore? Loves you even more on this side of the therefore. If God crazy loved you over there, even more crazy loves you over here. If God showed insane grace for you over there. He's got plenty of grace for you over here. If God's arm could reach you over there, why fear his reach over here? You are at peace with God. And I know it's weird for us to think that God might play favorites and treat people differently once they're in the family than than when they're not. But this is Paul's example, not mine. So don't blame me. He says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still sinners, He will certainly, if He would do it while we were enemies, He will certainly do it now that we're saved. Now, this is why it is so important that you take Romans as a full logical progression. Because this argument only works if you get chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because only when you see yourself through that lens in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of total depravity, of, if I, if I totally turn from God and just dive into my own way, I'm a sinner. And if I stand over here and judge the people doing that, I'm even worse. And until you, until you realize that every single one of us is completely undeserving, will you see yourself through that lens of total depravity, having nothing to offer towards your own righteousness? Will you understand that Jesus loved you enough to save you while that was you? While you were that mess? And if he loved you so much to save you while you were that mess, he's got grace for you here. You're at peace with God. How much more would he do for you now that you're his beloved? Now that doesn't mean he's not strict on you. Sometimes we're strict. Like sometimes it's because we have invested in them. That doesn't mean God won't, there's not consequences for sin and God won't really, you know, work on us and chip on us. And any of us who've fallen under the conviction of God know what that's like. But, it, but it, you know there's a big difference between me disciplining my kids and kicking them out on the streets. Like, of course you know, God's going to continue to work on you, but, but it's out of a place of love and peace and relationship and family. It's not out of that, that weight of, of, of condemnation. So if you're still playing the game where you're trying to measure up or earn something from God, then you'll stand here and go, well, today I was a pretty good day. I didn't do anything super bad today. I was pretty good today. Although I think I was better yesterday. I might have been better yesterday. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting old and jaded or I lost my temper today. I'm just getting grumpy. Maybe I'm getting lazy. Like you'll, you'll, you'll analyze everything about how you're living with God. But when you realize that you were totally, utterly, completely lost and without hope when God demonstrated His unfathomable love for you, why would He not show you grace now? Probably the plainest way to say it is this. If you couldn't, do anything to get saved, what makes you think you can do anything to stay saved? If you couldn't do anything to earn it in the first place, you can't do anything to hold on to it. It's God's grace all the way. You are at peace with God. If God showed us enough grace to save us, I think He's got enough grace to finish the job. You are at peace with God. And Paul goes on to talk about this whole world of growth and character development that opens up once you get this reality, once you settle into this peace with God, and you know I'm not fighting against God, I'm not striving with God. It's not God over here going, do this, do this. I'm like, I don't want to do this. That's not the game anymore. God is cheering you on. God is on your side. He's, he's on the sidelines behind you. And Paul says this about, about what comes once you settle into that peace. You can rejoice too when you run into problems and trials for you know they're going to help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not disappoint us for we know how dearly God loves us because he gave us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This is so powerful. And every time I hear a preacher talk about this, I feel like they miss the main point because they always want to go with what leads to what and what leads to what rather than realizing all of this is dependent on getting peace. All of this is dependent on understanding you have peace with God. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they'll help uh, uh, build endurance. Have you ever met a Christian who doesn't really know, like deep down in their guts, um, that they're at peace with God, and then they go through trials and 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 testing and problems? They wonder if they've done something to offend God. They wonder if it's the devil. They wonder if they need to pray more, or if there's sin in their heart. They wonder if they've made some agreement with the enemy they don't know about, they need to repent of. They'll wonder a million things. As soon as things go wrong, they, they, they go into, oh God, where did, I, where did I mess up? What am I doing wrong? And, and they scramble to, 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 to figure out what you don't see is joy. And, until you just know that I'm at peace with God, and that trials are going to happen and they're part of it. And it's how I grow and it's how I, you know, it's like it's like working out and your coach telling you to do one more set and you're just assuming he hates you. Like, why are you hate me so much that you make me exercise? No, I'm making you better. You have a deep peace that you know you're in good hands and God loves me and and, and I'm at peace with God and he's going to take care of me. Then when you go through hard times, you know this is going to build something in me that's going to be good for for me and for God's kingdom. This trial is going to help. You know that you're at peace with God, you can respond this way. You have to know God saved me for no reason other than his goodness. Why on earth would I go through something that's not going to be good for his kingdom and and for me? Paul says because because we know we have peace with God, we can rejoice in our trials. And at that point, we can start to build all this great character and, and stuff into us. We are filled with hope in the end, in any situation. And it all starts with knowing I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with Him. I don't believe any of the really deep character-building aspects of the Christian life, any of the real transformational power of the gospel, happens to us until we know that we're lost to do it on our own. And I'm at peace with God. He is good with me. I think once we can settle into that, that's when we really start to see the gospel transform us. We know that we've been saved by sheer grace, not our goodness. God saved us by sacrificing his son. And because of that act, we're at peace with him. Until that makes it into your core belief, your deep worldview, I just don't think the gospel truly transforms you in a paradigm-shifting kind of way. Now, I told you this chapter was formative to OTGC. That's because of the second half of the chapter, which I'm going to read real quick, make a, a short comment, and then we'll wrap up. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. And death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was no, there had not yet been a law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even though we did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ, who has not yet come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin that this one man, Adam, uh, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of the one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death, To rule over many, but the even greater is the gift, is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation to everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings the right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, bringing us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's actually a ton of Really deep and rich theology here that we don't have time to go into. Questions like, why is it fair that Adam's sin brought death on everybody? Answer because God's rescue plan was just as big where the death of one man could bring, um, redemption to everybody. Um, but there's, uh, there's some really good stuff about God's foreknowledge and his law. Um, but the part that really bears on our study this morning and really the part that, um, of this chapter, uh, that the therefore at the start of the chapter sets off, that line in the sand that divides us who um, who who was who were lost and depraved to those who are redeemed and who are at peace with God, the difference between those two sides is called the curse. Um, it's called the curse. And we talk about it here all the time. The enmity between humans and God, that open hostility, um, isn't like a product of the modern era. It isn't something that millennials brought in. It's not a, a result of broken families and the goal of the public school system. The, the beef between people and God is as old as Adam. It's not new. It's not something that's a, it's a, a problem with our culture. It's always been here. When humans decided to go their own way, God told them their life was going to be like this. It's going to be rough. We talk about it all the time here. Four relationships were broken in the fall. We call, we call That's what we call them, the four relationships Broken. Most theologians call them the curse. Jesus came to remove that. That's what he does. He came to redeem the curse. And we know, based on Revelation 22, that the curse won't be fully removed until the end of all things. And and we're always going to struggle and and work because of sin. Um, but our goal was to restore the original design as much as possible of humans ruling and reigning as God's stewards, bearing His image and reflecting His glory. And our goal at Open Table Community Church, specifically because of Romans 5, is to redeem those four relationships that, that Adam's sin broke. And, and we now have two paths. You follow Adam in that brokenness and sin and owning all of those broken relationships, or you follow Jesus and you work to redeem those things. It's Adam and Jesus. And, and, and we see that division strong here. So we take the relationship with God seriously. And we want to redeem that. We take our relationship with ourselves, including our mental and emotional health, seriously. And we want to to work to redeem that. We take our broken relationship with others, especially our spouses and families, seriously. And we want to work to redeem those. We take our relationship with our vocation and purpose in the world seriously. We believe the gospel has something to say to all those areas. And to relegate salvation to something that we sing about and talk about just a couple hours on Sunday morning that's really only about heaven is way too small. It's supposed to affect every part of us. How we look at ourselves, how we look at others, how we look at God, how we look at our purpose in this world. Jesus came to undo the curse. He came to undo what Adam did. That's the whole purpose of the second half of Romans 5. To fix what Adam broke. And that's the mission that we join into. As believers, that's what we join in. We're, we're, we're here to undo that brokenness. And I also believe that that's what it means to be at peace with God. It means I don't have to spend all my time worrying about whether or not I'm getting into heaven. That's not the battle. I'm at peace with God. The battle is now to join to try to make things right, to try to improve the world, to try to redeem the brokenness, to be a force for good and love and light. Being at peace with God means putting the whole question in God's hands. It's above our pay grade. We can can now join in God's mission of redeeming the four relationships broken in the fall. Actually living like there's no curse even though there still is one because we're at peace with God. So how do we respond to this? There's an image here in this chapter that that comes from the book of Leviticus. Um, Remember, we're standing at the altar in the tabernacle. Um, having accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf as God's gift of grace. And Leviticus reads like this, when they become aware of their sin, that's Romans 1, 2, and 3, they must bring an offering for their sin, a female goat with no defects. They must lay their hands on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it in the place where the burnt offerings are slaughtered. Then the priest will dip his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar for the burnt offering, and he will pour the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And he must remove all the goat's fat just as he does when the, uh, with the fat of the peace offering, he will burn the fat on the altar, and it will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Through this process, the priest will purify the people, making them right with the Lord, and they will be forgiven. This is the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. I've titled my sermon Sweet Savor. In this translation, it says a pleasing aroma. But the way the, that I learned it, the, the translation I learned it in said, the peace offering was, was burned on the altar and it was a sweet savor unto the Lord. And with it the priest will purify the people and make them right with the Lord for they'll be forgiven. That's the picture of Romans chapter 5. When we accept the sacrifice of Jesus by faith, it's like a sweet savor unto the Lord. I just picture God breathing in the beautiful smell of salvation. While we're worried about if we're doing everything right, or we're arguing, or 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 whether um, we need to repeat a prayer that the pastor says first, or maybe we have to join the church, or we don't know what the role of the baptism plays in the whole thing, and do we? How much do we have to clean up our act to be a Christian? While we're while we're wrestling through all of that stuff, God is just breathing in this sweet savor of salvation that 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 He bought with his son and all the while God is is just enjoying that presence of another sinner saved by faith. And I used to debate nonstop all the time. That was just my life as a Christian was debating. Sometimes other people were involved, but a lot of times it was just in my own head. Just constantly wrestling with things and and arguing with myself over half of this stuff. And the topic of the list of my Doctors, I love to debate with soteriology. The, the, the theology of salvation. The nature of salvation. Exactly how it happens. If it's a, a total work of God or the cooperation of God in humans, what role baptism plays. Can I be lost once I'm saved? Is it essential that there be some fruit after I'm saved? And on and on and on and on. This stuff used to just consume my thoughts. Just bang around in my head all the time. There was a constant, non-stop running chatter of Evidence and verses and arguments and counter arguments and and the voices of dead guys who were weighing in because I'd read their books and and sermons. They were echoing around in my head with everything else. And all that stress and effort uh, seemed to make sense because this is a big deal. Getting saved is a big deal. Salvation matters, and how we respond to the gospel matters, and all these things are motivated by getting our soteriology right, by getting our, our method of salvation right. And the church is divided over it for years. And it was Romans chapter 5 that finally quieted the chapter, the, all that chatter for me. Because I gave up. I took Paul at his word, and I chose to believe that I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with God. God is not the Riddler. He, he doesn't have some tricky formula. And if you don't get it just right, you know, ah, you're, you're out. If, if there were a formula, I think God would have made it pretty explicit in his word. And most of the questions I was wrestling over were way above my pay grade. Who gets in and who doesn't get in? I don't get to make that decision. But one thing I could be sure, God is good and he can be trusted and I'm at peace with him. And honestly, if I'm putting my faith in Jesus and trusting God for my vow salvation, and that's not enough, I probably wasn't going to get in anyway. If that's not going to do it, I don't really stand much of a chance. So why not just rest in God's grace and choose to believe that I'm at peace with God and believe that He loves me like, like a prodigal son returning, uh, trying to give a speech on why, exactly what my plans are, and God just hugs me. Happy that I'm home. We're at peace with God. You ever lost one of your kids? Anybody? Please raise your hand with me so I don't feel totally... Thank you. Even if you didn't, I need that support. We've lost several of ours. Like Never like extreme, but like for that two or three minutes that your heart you know, completely shatters and breaks and you imagine every horrible thing ever. Almost every time it's because a kid ran off when they weren't supposed to. They were being disobedient. They literally broke a rule they knew was a rule. Something grabbed their attention that was more important than the rule and they ran off. And we couldn't find them and we freaked out. You know what never crossed my mind after the two or three, four panicked minutes of hunting for them? Punishment. Never crossed my mind. Even though they broke a rule. They were worthy of punishment. They knew they were supposed to stay with us and they didn't do it. But the second I grabbed them in my arms and just like squeezed them and smelled their hair, and they're like, Dad, why are you freaking out? Why are you crying? Like, never crossed my mind to be upset with them. They were lost and now they're found. And I don't know if that image works for you. God kicking back and and enjoying the aroma of salvation, maybe that works for you. Or the prodigal's, son's father running across a field to embrace his wayward son, or an ecstatic woman finding a missing piece of silver, or a relieved dad squeezing a kid that he thought he had lost. The Bible's full of images trying to sell this idea that we are at peace with God. But if you don't have some image of God that deep in your emotional core equals being at peace with him, that that he's okay with you, then don't move on. Don't go any deeper in this book. Don't wade into the deep waters that come next. Because it's only okay to wrestle with the things that come next and struggle with them and try to figure out how to navigate sin and sanctification and missing the mark and holy living. All of that is okay to wade through because we know we have peace with God. If you get that backwards, you get real messed up. You have to know you're at peace with God. I don't make the bed and clean the kitchen and work on the yard because I'm afraid if I don't, Esther will leave me. Like, that's not how marriage works. That'd be a horrible way to live. And many of us live that way with God, trying so hard to please Him while also feeling some deep level that He's never satisfied. That's a horrible way to live. I do things for Esther because I love her and I want to make her happy. And I want to be the best husband I can because she deserves that and so much more. What if we live with God that way? Like no He's not going to leave us. He's, Man, he showed crazy grace for us when we were sinners. Of course he's going to stick with us now. What if rather than trying to please a demanding God who we're terrified is, is upset with us, what if we just trusted and, and and, and loved him and tried to do what, what would make him happy because we love him and, and want to. The rest of the book of Romans is to be, is to be taken in that spirit, that, that peace. We, we wrestle, we do. We definitely wrestle and work and struggle to do better and, and fight to grow but none of that is because God is demanding and angry and because we fear his wrath. We're at peace with God. So the way that I'd love to respond to this service is is to do something permanent with verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans.
1: I don't know how many times I've
0: said it in this, in this sermon. I thought about going back and counting, but this is something I believe you need deep in your heart. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Memorize that. Write it on a note card. Tape it to your mirror. Make a plaque with this verse on it and put it on your desk at work. But somehow this week, get this verse. And more importantly, this concept deep in your soul. We're at peace with God. Let's go.